The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped thoroughly furnished to every good work. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word to continue our study on the spiritual life, let's uh, start off with a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, you can utilize 1 John 1.9 to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together tonight to study your word, that it is the truth, the absolute truth, and it is our means of sanctification along with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it is on the basis of what we learn from your word that we are to renovate our thinking, to change our thinking to where we look at life and evaluate life and solve problems on the basis of your word and what you have revealed to us and the skills that you have given us spiritually the assets that you have provided. Now, Father, we pray that we would be challenged as we look at these things in particular in our study of Romans 8. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we continue our study on the spiritual life. Now, we saw last time that the first two and a half verses of Romans 8 Paul reviews his main points that he has been establishing in the last two chapters. In terms of an overview of Romans, Romans 1 and 2 establishes the guilt of the entire human race. Gentiles are guilty because they know that God exists and they have rejected Him. Jews are guilty. They not only have, um, they not only know God exists in the same way Gentiles do, they've had direct revelation, they have the law, they've rejected that. So all are therefore condemned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the solution is justification. This doctrine, justification by faith alone, is covered in starting at the end of Romans chapter 3 through chapter 5. And then starting in chapter 6, the subject shifts to now that we are justified, how then should we live? So point number one in Romans 8, 1a, the first phrase, which reads, there is therefore now no condemnation. We saw that condemnation, katakrima, comes, uh, is the opposite. It's the antonym for dikaiosune, or justification. And when, it, when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, he is reminding them that the reason for that is because we as believers have been justified by Christ. So point number one in his review is justification by faith alone removes all condemnation. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
There is never an excuse for feeling guilty, feeling down on yourself, having some kind of pity party because somehow you failed God and now God is disappointed in you or God can't ever use you again. As long as you are living, as long as your heart is beating, God still has a plan for your life. There is always a grace recovery procedure no matter how badly you have failed, no matter how miserably you have disappointed yourself, and no matter how much everybody around you tells you that you are a loser and that God can never, uh, can never use you again and there's no, uh, no hope for you and you're just some sort of second or third class Christian. That's not true. There may be consequences to your sin. There may be some very painful things that you still have to go through as a result of your sin and extended carnality, but that does not mean that you can't overcome that, that you can't go forward and that you cannot be a trophy to God's grace in this life. So we need to remember that if we are believers, we are eternally secure in our salvation, and there is therefore now no condemnation. Specifically, this relates to our position in Christ. Now, this is the second part of the verse. It is for those who are in Christ. There are eternal realities and temporal realities which we must keep in mind as we go through this section of Romans 8. If we don't, we're going to lose track and it may be very easy for you to get caught up in some form of legalism. The Scriptures talk about the fact that we are in Christ. This is a technical term. It is a Pauline term and it relates to our identification in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 18 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We have to remind ourselves of what those new things are. They include our reconciliation. We are redeemed. We are regenerated. That means God create, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to us a human spirit at the instant of salvation, and God imputes to it his very own eternal life. Now, all of these are our eternal realities, and they're part of 40 distinct things God does for us at the instant of salvation, which we can never lose. And the thing that always amazes me, and I know that some of you get involved at times in conversations with uh, people who are from other churches or other backgrounds, and they have a terrible time understanding the doctrine of eternal security, that once we're saved, we're always saved, and they always think there might be something you can do or they can do to lose salvation. And one of the things that amazes me is that they don't understand all that is involved at salvation. At that one instant in time, when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, so many different things happen to you in the spiritual realm that are real that to even think that they're reversible is absurd. But we have such a shallow view in American Christianity of salvation. It's like one minute you trust Christ and you're saved, and that's the whole package. That's it. Then you get everything else. But the Bible says you get it all at the instant of salvation. And so uh, to help some of you, because I know there have been questions a time or two, well, what are the 40 things? And I haven't had time to do a detailed study of them. I'm going to have Al break them down and start listing them as an insert in the bulletin on Sunday. So that way you can get a little, uh, have something to to read uh, when you go home. Uh, during the week to remind yourselves of all the possessions that you have in Christ. So we are regenerated. We are adopted into God's family. And the technical term 
And this is not a slight on women. It is that we are adopted as sons. And that's another instance where you have to interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written. That a son was a special privileged position in the Roman society. And that is what that is talking about. This is the firstborn son, designated firstborn, not the first in time, but in priority and prestige. And this is the heir. So this is talking about our place in Christ, that at the instant of salvation we are adopted. To lose salvation would mean you would have to be de-adopted, and that's absurd. We become a creation so that all things are new. To lose salvation would mean that we would have to lose all the new things, and all the old things would have to be brought back. Once again, that's absurd. We are freed, as we have been studying in Romans 6, we are freed from the tyranny, the power of the sin nature. That power is broken so that in our post-salvation experience, we have experiential freedom now to actually live, to make decisions that do not that do not involve the sin nature. Prior to salvation, it's just not an option. We have a new life in Christ and we are saved to live out that new life. We are saved for newness of life that we might walk in newness of life according to Romans 6.4. We have a new life and we need to live out the quality of it. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That means God puts His brand on us so that we are in the herd, so to speak, to use that branding analogy. We have His mark on us that cannot be removed. It refers to the signature seal that was used in the Roman Empire, and it cannot be broken. And we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, which is part of our subject in this passage tonight. So all of these, and these are just some of the many things that God does for us at the instant of salvation... And they all have to do with our positional reality. Who we are. We are a new creature. We have a new identity, a new position, a new place in Christ. Then the second sphere, and I chose these white circles because we are to walk in the light and that symbolizes the light. We are filled by means of the Holy Spirit and we are to walk in the light by means of God the Holy Spirit, which is what we'll cover also in this passage. Now, when we come to this second principle that Paul has, is reminding us of, then this comes up in... Um, let me see, I want to move forward here. Here we go. Baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. This is the second point in verse, the second half of verse 1, which reads that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that phrase, in Christ Jesus, as we just saw in the previous diagram emphasizes the fact that, at, that of our positional truth. That takes place by means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which secures the believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The third point of Paul's review in the beginning of Romans 8 is that being in Christ means that we are free from the tyranny of the sin nature. This is mentioned in Romans 6, 6, 6, 18, and 6, 22. In 6.22, Paul says, But now, having been freed, past tense, indicating something that has already taken place at the instant of salvation, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. This is our position in Christ. We are slaves to God. 
you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. Now that is progressive sanctification. He is talking about the second stage in the spiritual life resulting in sanctification and the outcome, the outcome is eternal life. Now this is not talking about what we normally speak of as salvation here in terms of uh, when we get saved that we have eternal life. Let's go back a couple of stages here. There are three stages of of, uh, salvation. We have to keep this in mind during this passage. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. Now, phase one is what happens at the cross. We have to keep this clearly in mind that at the cross is when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. It takes place in an instant in time. That instant, half a second maybe, when God the Father recognizes that we have put our faith and trust in Christ. When we make that decision to trust Christ, we believe the gospel. At that instant, we are justified. In that instant, if you take that second, split it down into 50 parts, extract one of those parts, one fiftieth of a second, everything happens then. We are, are justified. Our, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. God the Father sees that. He declares us to be just. He regenerates us. We are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And we are given new life in Christ. All of that happens in that split second. And it's simultaneous. We can talk about it in terms of what happens first, second, third logically. But it all happens at the same instant chronologically. Now that's phase one. And we call that technically justification. That's when we are born again and we become a new creature in Christ. Phase two is the spiritual life. This is our spiritual growth. This is when we move from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. It's not a straight line. It's an up and down line. Some people's lines look quite erratic. Other people, not so so much of a roller coaster ride. But everybody has their ups and downs, their failures, And it is due to the grace of God and His grace solution that we overcome the sin and the problems in our life. And phase three is glorification. Now, we're going to see all three of these in the passage we're looking at tonight. That's why we have to keep this this chart in mind so that we can understand these distinctions. They are also called positional sanctification for phase one because by virtue of our being placed in Christ, We are positionally identified with Him and set apart. That's the meaning of hagiosmos for sanctification. We are positionally set apart to Christ. Progressive sanctification has to do with our growth. We have to be positionally sanctified before we can be progressively sanctified. This is our experience. This is learning to apply doctrine. So, First of all, it is learning doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then it is applying doctrine and advancing in spiritual maturity, and then ultimate sanctification is when we are uh, absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, and we no longer have a sin nature. At phase one, we are freed from the penalty of sin. At phase two, from, we are freed from the power of sin. And in phase three, we are saved from the presence of sin when we no longer have a sin nature. Now, Paul has made these three points in terms of review that justification is by faith alone and removes all condemnation. Secondly, baptism by means of the Holy Spirit secures the believer's identification 
with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Third, that being in Christ means that we are free from the tyranny of the sin nature. And now fourth, the Mosaic law, including any ritual system of trying to gain God's approval, any system of morality, are incapable of defeating the presence of the sin nature. Mankind, on his own, apart from any external aid from God, is incapable of controlling the sin nature. The power of the sin nature is broken at salvation. But the ability to live and to have victory in that struggle is not apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's seen in all of Romans chapter 7. And Paul summarizes that in verse 23 where he says, I see a different law in the members of my body. That would be the law of sin. I see a different law, a different principle in the members of my body, the sin nature, waging war against the law that is the principle of my mind, the thinking part of my soul, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So he's talking as a believer, and that is that even as a believer we can still become a prisoner of the sin nature, not in the sense of that unbreakable bondage, of the unbeliever prior to salvation, but by our own volitional choices. When, as soon as we choose to sin, we just voluntarily put ourselves back under the dominion of the sin nature. And so the Mosaic Law, even though it is good, holy, and righteous, ritual systems and systems of morality are incapable of defeating the presence of the sin nature. And Paul is summarizing that in Romans 8, 3a, when he says, for what the law could not do, the law could not defeat the sin nature or gain power over it, weak as it was through the flesh. That is, the human flesh, not just the sin nature, is too weak. Man is incapable on his own of dealing with the sin nature. And then we see the grace solution, and this is seen in the second half of verse 3. So the first four points here are review points. And then the fifth point begins to develop his next stage of the argument. In other words, he is showing how the believer is to have victory in this struggle, and it's through this new principle related to the spirit of life, which is the Holy Spirit. So point five is the believer is delivered from the struggle with the sin nature by what he calls in this verse the law of the spirit of life. That's in the first part of verse two. The law of the spirit of life. Now, some people might look at that and at first glance think that life here is related once again to eternal life. This is the problem that we have in, I think, because of the way our Christian culture is. Every time we talk about saved, we think of justification. Every time we talk about life, we talk about uh, living eternally as opposed to spending eternity in the lake of fire. But we have to change our frame of reference. The context tells us whether we're talking about the depths of the spiritual life, capacity for life, quality of life, and advanced blessings for the spiritual life, or whether we're talking about life eternally. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come as a thief to kill and to destroy, but I came to give life. That's phase one, eternal life, life without end, and to give life abundantly. And that is the spiritual life, and we have to keep those distinct. Remember back in Romans chapter 1, the key verse for understanding Romans is a quote from Habakkuk, and it states that in the English, the just 
shall live by faith. But we realize by looking at the Greek and the Hebrew of Habakkuk 2 that that it is poorly translated and it should read, the justified by faith shall live. And this is Paul's, this is his thesis statement, that the person who is justified by faith, which is salvation phase one, shall live, which is phase two. And so when Paul uses the word live and life and peace in Romans 8, he's already covered justification salvation back in Romans 3, 4, and 5. So now he's talking about the spiritual life, how to have that abundant life that God promised us so that we can live above our circumstances and not dominated by our circumstances, constantly reacting constantly under the dominion of the sin nature, constantly operating on mental attitude sins and overt sins. So look at the contrast in verse 2. It's the contrast between the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now this law of sin and death is previously mentioned in Romans 7.23 and in Romans 7.25, and there it clearly refers to the, bond, the post-salvation bondage of the believer to his own sin nature, his own volitional decision to sin. So, when we come then to, to the fifth point here in terms of this review, Paul is saying that the believer is delivered from the struggle with the sin nature by this new law of the Spirit. Now, the, the Spirit of life is living in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that that is called walking according to the Spirit in this passage. And we're familiar with the terminology in Galatians 5.16 to walk by means of the Spirit and in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. So that's what that's referring to. The law of the Spirit of life is the new principle of living the Christian life on the basis of the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is what sets apart the spiritual life of the church age from the Old Testament spiritual life and from the pseudo-spiritual life of every other crazy religious system that's floating around today. And the way most unbelievers and most crazy Christians think of the spiritual life has to do with a psychological state that they've gone through some kind of experience and it's the criteria for it has to do with your emotional well-being. And the terminology, if you listen carefully... And you ought to listen to people. The terminology that is being used by so many to describe spiritual well-being is psychobabble. It's just psycho- psychological terminology. It's not biblical terminology. So they have taken a, a biblical concept and taken it back over into cosmic thinking, the world system of thinking, and reoriented it. And it's what we're talking about on, in our study of Judges on Sunday morning. It's paganizing Christianity. And this has always been the problem. Christians have always wanted to assimilate to the world rather than take a strong stand that is distinct from the thought forms around, around them. So it is this new principle related to the Holy Spirit of life. There it's an adjectival genitive indicating that He is the one that gives us this quality of life and that this is, sets us free from the law of sin and death which is carnality. Carnality is living outside the right circle, not walking by the Spirit, but walking according to the flesh. And the flesh, the lust, produces sin, and sin produces death according to uh, James chapter 1. 
So that is the background to understand this, this new solution that God has given us, the grace provision of the law of the Spirit of life. 3b then outlines for us the basis for the believer's struggle. Once again, it is grace. God did it. He sent His own Son, the verse reads, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did it, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and of an, as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I want you to look at that verse. Got it up there on the overhead. Just take a good look. Try to understand what that is saying. This is not a simple concept especially if you look at it in the English. God did this. God did provided the solution, so it's a great solution. God does all the work and man receives it. Now, it is explained by Paul here as God sending His own Son. That has to do with the incarnation from the virgin conception, virgin birth, and the period of 33-odd years that Christ is on the earth in the flesh. He sent His own Son in the likeness. That's the Greek word, homiomati which is the same word used over in Philippians 2. We studied that Sunday morning when we looked at the hypostatic union in Philippians 2, that Jesus came in the likeness. It's not the exact likeness. It's not an exact replica. Why? Because man now is fallen. Jesus did not have a sin nature, so He is like man in every way except that He is a sinner. So God sends His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ had to be full, true humanity in order to live a life that was tested in all points as we are and then have victory over the temptations of sin on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ at the Incarnation pioneers for us the unique spiritual life of the church age. So what we see is something like this. From the time of His incarnation to the cross, we'll put parenthesis here, this, we're not talking about what happens on the cross. Now, how come I can say that? Doesn't it look like this is substitutionary atonement terminology here? It says that He was an offering for sin, and incidentally, offering is not in the original Greek, so, so you have to look at it in terms of, uh, in the likeness of sinful, sinful flesh, for sin. Forget the word, an offering for. As for sin. Now, as soon as you take out that word offering, now, here's a little note. Some translator added the word offering there. Now, why did he do that? Because he looked down and he saw the word for sin, saw those two words, for sin, and he immediately thought, atonement. Wrong. Now, when you're talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and the substitutionary atonement means that Christ paid our penalty. He bore, according to 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 2.21, He bore our, our sins in His body on the cross. He carried the penalty for our sins on the cross. It's substitutionary atonement. It is not some sort of moral atonement where Jesus, because He was so good, was, was giving us an example. It's not an example form of the atonement. It is substitutionary. 
Now, the Greek word uses, the Greek uses two precise prepositions for substitutionary atonement. The first is huper, usually with a genitive of advantage, huper, that Christ died for you. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, huper, Christ died for us. Huper plus the first person plural pronoun. Or there is another Greek word that is often used as a preposition for substitution, and that is the Greek word anti, A-N-T-I. Now, these are the two prepositions for substitution. But what we have here in the Greek of of, uh, 8.3 is not huper or peri. What we have is the preposition, I mean, not huper or anti, we have the preposition peri. P-E-R-I, which means concerning or in reference to or with reference to something. So the way this should be read is God solved the problem, sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and with reference to sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, how did He judge sin in the flesh? This is not talking about the atonement. This is talking about the incarnation between the virgin birth and His time on the cross. Because it was in the flesh, when He is in the likeness of sinful flesh, when He is in the body, this is not talking, the flesh at this verse, is not talking about the sin nature, but the human body. When He is in the human body, He is minus a sin nature, but He is plus the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Scripture says, calls Him the second Adam, because as the second Adam, He is to go through every category of testing that any of us will go through. Not that He goes through every identical situation. In fact, most of His were probably tougher than what we go through. Yet, without sin, the writer of Hebrews says, He is impeccable. What He does is He goes through all of these tests and in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, and in the power of God the Holy Spirit, He says no to sin. No, 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 all the way through, in order to pioneer the fact that the filling of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to defeat sin. And that's what 8.3 is talking about. It's not talking about what Christ did at the cross. It is talking about the fact that, that the law was unable to provide the solution to sin, Christ did it through His dependence on the filling of the Holy Spirit during the Incarnation. It's not talking about the cross. That's earlier. We have to keep our focus on the subject matter of the section of the book. Now, the law was incapable of providing the power source to defeat sin. Christ defeated sin condemned it in the flesh, in His flesh, during His lifetime because He relied on the Holy Spirit. Now, why did He do that? We have to look at the rest of the sentence coming into verse 4. Verse 4 we read, "...in order that..." This is a purpose clause, hina clause in the Greek, indicating His purpose for the incarnation, "...in order that the requirement of the law..." might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a couple of different ways in which people take this. First blush look at this verse. 
looks as if the law being fulfilled, isn't that what happens when we're saved? We're imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ so that the law is fulfilled. That's wrong. If that is what this is talking about, then it's talking about phase one salvation, and the text would read like this. I'll give you an expanded translation. In order that the full requirement of law, the law might be fulfilled in us, comma. See, you've got a comma there, right? That shouldn't be there. That's an interpretive decision. Remember, I keep telling you there's no punctuation in the Greek. A comma should not be there. But that's how this writer is taking it, that this fulfilling of the law is what happens at salvation with an imputation of righteousness. But remember, where did we read about imputation of righteousness? Romans 4, not Romans 8. That the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If fulfilling the requirement of the law is what happens to every person at the moment of salvation, then every person from the moment of salvation on walks according to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's blatantly false. Not only that, but but the rest, if you, you'd have to look at everything else in this chapter as being, I mean, at least down to verse, verse 11, through verse 11, and you would have to say that, that all of these things are, apply to every believer, that every believer walks according to the Spirit, that every believer has his mind set on the things of the Spirit, and every believer has life and peace, because you would be setting this up as talking about the believer. And that is the normal way... Lordship salvation people take this passage. And most people you talk to will probably want to take this passage that way because they want to jump ship. And by that I mean they're jumping from the middle of a section on sanctification and they want to go back to chapter 4, which is justification, because they're so concerned that some believer just might commit some heinous sin and think he's getting away with it. So they have to say that, no, 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 if you're really a believer, you walk according to the, to the Spirit, and if you're not walking according to the Spirit, then you weren't really saved. You didn't have saving faith. You just had a false faith, just a superficial faith. So you need to make sure you have a saving faith. And, of course, they can never explain the difference, except in hyper-Calvinism to say that, well, it's really not up to you. God gives you the faith after all. So it doesn't have anything to do with your volition. So the the whole thing is a system. Now, what Paul is saying here is that Christ pioneered the spiritual life in verse 3 in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, what is the requirement of the law? It's always important to make sure that you interpret a passage in the light of the usage of terms first and first, as that term is used elsewhere in that particular piece of literature, and secondly, how it's used by the author elsewhere. What we find here, first of all, is that the believer learns that the law, let's stop a minute, the law is talking about the new law in Christ, which is mentioned over in Galatians 5, which is the law of love and the law of liberty. That needs to be the context of the law, and we'll see that in Romans 13.8. The believer learns to fulfill the law, and this is really the law of Christ, as it's redefined in, in Galatians 5, 
only through advancing to spiritual maturity. Fulfill here doesn't mean an absolute 100% fulfillment of every category of the law in an absolute sense at the moment of salvation. Because the law is defined specifically for us in Romans 13.8. Look up on the screen. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, we have seen time and time again that this is the key mandate for the spiritual life in the church age. Jesus announced it to his disciples in the upper room. He said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. It is the, the, called the royal law in James chapter 2, and we studied it in detail there. It is also uh, mandated in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, and in order to help the Galatian readers understand how to apply it, Paul took a little, little side detour. And that's when he started talking about walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, he's, he start, when he says that in Galatians 5.16, to walk by means of the Spirit, he's giving us the mechanics for how to love one another that it's only done by walking by means of the Spirit. It's not an absolute. You don't get saved and you're automatically going to love one another. So it can't be an absolute fulfillment. It's the result of walking by means of the Spirit. And there he says you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we went through a lengthy study of Galatians 5 last year and we saw that you've got these two opposites. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the sin nature. It gives examples of what the sin nature looks like And then the first thing he says when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love. Because that's his context. He's talking about love one another. So the first fruit of the Spirit is love. It is the result of spiritual growth. It is not something that is an absolute salvation that causes spiritual growth. So from that, from looking at Romans 13.8, we see, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, a key mandate for the spiritual life. For he who loves his neighbor has what? Fulfilled the law. The verb there is plerao, the same verb that we have in, in uh, Romans 8.4. And the object is the law. So fulfilling the law in Romans 13.8 is seen as a progressive thing that comes as you mature. More, the more doctrine you learn, the more you walk by means of the Spirit, the more doctrine you learn under the filling of the Spirit, the more you advance to spiritual maturity and can fulfill the law. So Christ pioneers the spiritual life in the flesh, showing that as a human, under the, with the filling of the Spirit, the sin nature can be conquered, so that, for the purpose that, the requirement of the law, which is to love one another, might be fulfilled in us. And, and plerao there is an aorist uh, passive subjunctive, which indicates potentiality. A subjunctive mood always indicates its, its potential, and that means it depends on your volition. Once again, it always comes back to our individual responsibility and in making the right decisions. So Jesus Christ pioneers the, this new spiritual life for the purpose that this requirement of the law to love one another might be fulfilled or brought to completion in us, brought to maturity, and then... I want you to notice how it's punctuated there in the English. You have a comma. Now, a comma means that that is viewed as a complete clause. Us, comma. That the 
And the way the translator has interpreted this is that the requirement of the law, he's taken that as an absolute, might be fulfilled in us, comma. And he's taking that as salvation. But if you remove the comma, the way it reads is that the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk. You see the difference? It's us who do not walk that can fulfill the law. It's not just us as believers who fulfill the law. See, if you take a comma after the us, the us refers to believers and it could be interpreted and is often interpreted in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in, in, in we believers. But there's no comma in the Greek text. In fact, what you have is a uh, relative clause that modifies the us, that the us who fulfill the law are the us who do not walk according to the sin nature. It's not us who are believers. And that's the difference. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, the only way to fulfill the requirement of the law to love one another is to what? To not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you take this as salvation, what this means is that as a believer, you will automatically love one another and automatically walk by the Spirit from the day you're saved on. Well, what are you going to do with the command in Galatians 5.16 which says to walk by means of the Spirit and it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and that is given to teach us the mechanics of being able to love one another, that it's produced by God the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life of the church age is unique. It is supernaturally produced because it is a supernatural standard. Now, Paul says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the sin nature. So the first point that we learn here is that the believer learns to fulfill the law of Christ only through advancing to spiritual maturity. Second point, the believer can never fulfill the law absolutely. In our experience, we can never fulfill the law. That's Romans 7. I don't do what I want to do, and I want to do what I don't want to do. I'm always saying, I can't do the things that I'm supposed to do, and I'm always doing the things I'm not supposed to do. Wretched man that I am. I constantly have this struggle between the old nature and the new nature. We can never fulfill the law absolutely. Therefore, it must be viewed as fulfilling it relatively in terms of spiritual growth. And then point three, therefore, this is talking about a potential, a potential for spiritual growth. Every believer has this equal potential because it's based on the assets, the spiritual assets that God gives every single one of us at the instant of salvation. In other words, there is no excuse for failure in the Christian life except your own volition. It's our responsibility. We can't blame it on anybody else. We can't blame it on our background. We can't blame it on any other factor other than we do what we want to do because we want to do it. It doesn't matter that you didn't know it was a sin. You wanted to do it and you did it. That's the issue. You made the decision and you and I suffer the consequences from those bad decisions. This tells us then that there are two classes of believers and these are explained in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh. Now, I want you to notice this phrase that is used here. It, in verse 4, we had it introduced, according to the flesh and according to the Spirit. We find the same phrase again in verse 5. According to the flesh, 
they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit set their things set their mind on the things of the Spirit. The phrase is a is a Greek preposition kata plus the accusative form, and it means according to a standard. To walk, walking is a metaphor for life, walking according to a standard. So we can either walk according to the standards of the sin nature, or we can walk according to the standards of the Holy Spirit. Then we get a description of what these two classes of Christians look like. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now the Greek word here, translated thinking, is from the verb phroneo. P-H-R-O-N-E-O. Now, as a the verb, it means to think in a particular manner. It means to be engaged in thoughtful planning. It's, the emphasis is on the underlying mental attitude. It means to seriously contemplate something, to ponder, to let your mind dwell on something, and to fix our attention on something. So it is a word for thought and a word for thinking. It is not a word for feeling or emotion or affection or sentiment. It is a word emphasizing thought. It's a word that emphasizes content. That the person who is living according to the said nature sets. Now that word set implies volition. They set their mind, their thinking on something. That includes the content of their thought. It includes the way in which they think, their methodology. It includes uh, the norms and standards of their thinking, their evaluation uh, procedures. It includes how they try to solve problems on their, in their life on the basis of their own resources, trying to come up with their own methods for solving problems and living according to their own opinions. Those who are according to the flesh set their thinking on the things of the sin nature. But those who are according to the Spirit, and I think all through this, what we can do is say that the verb has been ellipsized. That means it's left out, and the verb would be picked up back in verse 4, which is walking. Those who walk, literally, it's Paul's talking, going very fast, so he's leaving out the word, and that indicates a sense of excitement and enthusiasm. He's saying for those who are walking, literally, I mean, that's implied, walking according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are walking according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Then he shifts in verse 6, and he gives us another aspect of this. For the mind set on the flesh. Notice how he changes his verbiage. He's moved from according to the standard of the flesh to set. He's advanced it. If you walk according to the flesh, you set your minds on the flesh. If you set your mind on the flesh, the result is death. This is carnal death. He's not talking about condemnation. Notice how he 
contrast this death with the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. So death is contrasted to life and peace. Life and peace are not always life everlasting and peace of reconciliation. We need to ask a question about what is the meaning of peace. Peace in Romans can, of course, mean reconciliation. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Because we're justified, we have peace with God. And that enmity with God is broken down because we have been reconciled by the work of Christ on the cross. But peace is not necessarily talking about what happens at phase one justification. There is also a phase two peace which has to do with our growth in the spiritual life as our mentality is stabilized by Bible doctrine. Paul uses it this way several times in Romans. For example, in Romans 14.19, he says, So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. There it is clearly a progressive concept that we advance in peace and stability as we grow in the spiritual life. Then in Romans 15.13, Paul states, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Now, they're already believers. If they're going to get joy and peace as a complete package at phase one, why would he pray, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace? Because that is the consequence. This category of peace is the peace that comes as a result of applying doctrine and letting the mentality of the soul being, be stabilized by the doctrine in the soul. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. It has its source in God in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Galatians 5.22, we see these concepts all brought together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. This is the product, the fruit, the production of the Holy Spirit in a mature believer. Those of you who have been out gardening lately with the advent of spring and summer, although I've been wondering where spring went. It seems like we went from winter right into summer, and winter still wants to poke its head up a little bit. You know, down in, down in Texas right now, it's 105, and that's in the shade, and you can go outside and crack an egg on the sidewalk and fry it for breakfast. You don't even have to turn on the stove. But, yeah, well, it's so late here. I mean, the crops already burned up down there for the summer. They, they had, their, their plants all produced fruit two or three weeks ago. But fruit doesn't come right away, does it? If you put in your garden two or three weeks ago, it will be the end of July, 1st of August, before you see fruit. It takes time. If you planted some seeds, maybe uh, you went in and you planted some, some seeds and some pots inside the house earlier in uh, April to let the little seedlings grow before it warmed up enough so you could put them in the ground. You know that it takes a while. You have to have the seed germinate. Then there's life and there's growth. There's plant production, leaf production, stem production. And it's not for 60, 80 days before there's any fruit. That's true in the spiritual life. Fruit doesn't happen right away. There has to be spiritual growth before there is spiritual production. There has to be time walking by the Spirit under the filling of the Spirit before we can see these character qualities developed in life. They are not absolutes. They come at the instant of our salvation. So, when we come to a passage like Romans 8, 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death, 
This is talking about temporal or carnal death. When the believer is out of fellowship, everything he produces adds up to death. It's under the sin nature. The sin nature just produces death. When lust conceives, it produces sin. When sin conceives, it produces death, according to James 1. So the mindset on the flesh is death. It's misery. It's self-destruction. You won't solve your problems. You'll just make your problems worse. You will have nothing but wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind, the mentality, the thinking that is focused on this Holy Spirit is life and peace. When you make Bible doctrine the number one priority in your life, when learning the Word and applying the Word is everything to you, that is when you begin to experience what life is all about. Life does not consist in having positive circumstances or pleasing emotions or wonderful friends. Real life begins by having a relationship with God so that whatever happens in life, we can handle those problems and we have a peace that surpasses all comprehension, happiness, and we have blessing that that may be material, may be spiritual, whatever it is. It is what lasts throughout all of eternity. So that is the result of a mentality that puts doctrine first above everything else. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace because, verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh, set on the sin nature, is hostile toward God. For it does not submit itself, subject is another word, I like submit better for definition, submit itself to the law of God, that is the absolutes of God's Word, for it is not able to do so. When we are out of fellowship and under control of the sin nature, there is nothing we can do to, to please God. All we can do is admit our sins to God, 1 John 1, 9. When we confess our sins, God forgives us. That is not a work. That's not doing something that pleases God. It is simply doing what God says to do so that we can be restored to fellowship and advance in the spiritual life. Once we're back in fellowship... See, 1 John 1.9 isn't a mechanism for growth. It's a mechanism for recovery. Then you can begin to grow again. Too many people get the idea that all I have to do is confess my sins and throw up my hands and the Holy Spirit takes over and fruits produce. Wrong. You have to engage your volition, learn doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Confession simply restores you to a position of potential growth. But growth then is dependent upon learning and applying doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. So when you're carnal, when you're out of fellowship, under the control of the sin nature, you don't want to submit yourself to God and your whole nature is antagonistic to spiritual things. Verse 8, and we should note that there is a bit of a change here. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, the word translated and at the beginning of verse 8 is the Greek conjunction de, D-E. Now, de can either be and like a chi, K-A-I, or it can be a contrast like Allah, a contrastive conjunction. Here, it is to, should be understood like Allah. This is a contrast. He is shifting from talking about Christians who walk according to the standard of the sin nature and unbelievers who are still in the flesh. 
Notice he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He shifted his prepositions. He's not saying those who are according to the flesh. He is saying if you're walking according to the flesh, your mind is set on the flesh and is set on death. And that's just like an unbeliever. For those, and he's reminding them in verse 8 of what they were before they were saved. What we all were before we were saved. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you're out of fellowship, you can't please God either. You're just like an unbeliever. However, he says to remind them in verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. As a believer, you are in the Spirit. Now, you can be in the Spirit and walk according to the flesh. But he clearly is talking here in 8 and 9, he's reminding them of the fact that they have been moved from being an unbeliever to a believer. They, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you're walking according to the flesh, you're just like an unbeliever. However, remember, you're not an unbeliever. You, there has been a radical shift. So why are you living like an unbeliever? Why do you continue to think like an unbeliever? Why do you continue to make decisions like an unbeliever? Why do you continue to let the sin nature dominate you like an unbeliever? Why do you continue to make the same rotten decisions you made as an unbeliever? You're not an unbeliever anymore, so realize that a change has taken place and get your mind set on doctrine. Verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that's the doctrine of the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in every believer. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So there it's clear that in the flesh, in the Spirit, are talking about salvation concepts. But according to the flesh and according to the Spirit are talking about Christian life issues, carnal versus spiritual. At this point, we need to stop and look at the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as distinct from the filling of the Holy Spirit. But we've run out of time, so we'll start with that next time, next Wednesday night. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the time to look at Your Word this evening, to be challenged, to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the sin nature because a radical change took place in our lives at the instant of our salvation. You gave us unlimited resources. You broke the tyranny of the sin nature and now we can go on to walk in newness of life. And this is our challenge. Father, we pray that we might not forget that we have been saved for a purpose and that purpose is to glorify You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.